try that. Is that better? Check, 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 check. Uh, okay, that's good enough. It'll come out. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the next two weeks a little study on what is biblical friendship. And by biblical friendship, I mean what does the Bible say about friendship. I'm not even necessarily saying what is uniquely Christian friendship, although that is the ultimate goal in a sense, okay? So think with me about this. Think about how we've, I think, lost a view of friendship, biblically speaking. I just, you know, thinking kind of sociologically, culturally. Uh, notice how confusion really abounds. Um, psychology tells us that you need a buddy, right? And back in the 70s and 80s when, uh, you understand, what happens in psychology 25 years later is considered Christian doctrine as that gets imported into the church. And uh, most of that is unhelpful. But yeah, you need a buddy. You, you can't be healthy if you don't have a buddy um, in that. So we think about what psychology says. What about American culture? You don't need anybody, right? The self-made man. It uh, doesn't matter where you came from. doesn't matter what your, your background was. You don't need anybody but you. And your determinism is all that you really need for success in life. Think about more modern culture. You need a village, Right? That's, that's a more modern thing, and it, and it comes from, uh, well, actually, it comes from a couple of places. You know, there's more of an Eastern view of culture coming into this, and there's also a political viewpoint here, more of a, a socialistic sort of approach that says, you know, you need um, friends in high places, so to speak, uh, for you to be fulfilled in your life. Uh, what about fear of man? I need everyone to be my friend. And there are some people that operate out of that, right? And they, they just can't stand the thought that they're not friends with everybody. And they go around living as if that's a desire and they are crushed and struggle when there are people in life that are not their friend. Or what about this? I don't want anyone to really know me. The, the person who is the master of superficial relationships, casual relationships... You know anybody like that? They just don't open up. They don't want to open up. They, they, they want to do their own thing. They want to hide. And, and, and that's not necessarily intentional. I think some of that is just, you know, God makes us all different. Some of us are more open, just like, hey, here's my life. And other people are like, no, I don't want you to get to know me. But I want you to see, both of those are manifestations of fear. And the Bible describes it as the fear of man. And even though they have very opposite, you know, I need everybody to be my friend. I don't want anybody to be my friend. Both of them are based in a fear. Uh, what about this? Selfishness. I need people to get what I want. You ever had a relationship with somebody and you realize that the only reason that they are your friend is because they want something from you? Or they need something from you? Or they're desiring to get something from you? Um, that, that's, that's huge. Uh, people being used in relationships is, is a huge part. It's, you see it in business. Right? You see it in uh, romantic relationships. Uh, you see it in uh, friendships. You see it in the church, unfortunately. Interesting. In our culture, in our day, friendship is primarily defined by online or social media status. Now, if, if you're over 40, or definitely over 50, this may not be as much of a problem for you. But if you're younger than 40, uh, this is probably a temptation. And um, think about that. In fact, let, let's think about that a little bit further. Think about how crazy this is. Ironies of modern society. We are more connected 
with more people than literally any other time in human history. But genuine, biblically defined friendships are at an all-time low. Think about that. I told you about my friend, Pastor Hota, down in, in Quito. And without even thinking, Wednesday, or I guess it was Friday, um, I get on my computer, I fire up Skype, and literally three seconds, I'm video chatting with my pastor friend all the way down in South America like he was in the room with me. It's amazing, fascinating. And we can do that, can't we? You can get on a plane, you can fly anywhere in the world, you can get on video chat, even in, even in some far-off places, they've got internet and they can FaceTime on their phone and you know they've got social media accounts and all that. We are, we are incredibly connected to more people in the world than any other time in history. And yet, sociologists tell us, study after study after study after study, I see it in premarital counseling, I see it in ministry uh, to youth in our community. We're at an all-time low when it comes to genuine friendships. Isn't that interesting? How about that? Here's another irony. We love transparency in a broadcast with total strangers. But we are strangely fearful and unwilling to be open in relationships that really require it. Isn't that interesting? People get on social media and they will be like, hey! And they'll just start spouting off about whatever they think is important to them. And yet those same people with their parents, with their children, with their spouses, in their church, are strangely fearful when it comes to actually having real relationships, real open relationships. Isn't that interesting? And again, I'm painting with a broad brush here. This is not always true in every situation. But, but statistically, what I'm telling you is true as a general rule. Here's one more. We are addicted to social media and texting, but have a growing discomfort and lack of skills in face-to-face personal relationships and conversations. You know where I see this? Is in counseling young married couples. And it's like, Jack's going to laugh at me when I say this, but, you know, you're having a fight with your spouse and you're trying to resolve it over a text messaging conversation. And, you know, some of you are going, what's wrong with that? Okay, well, let's talk. Let's have an appointment sometime. Um, That's not how you resolve your conflict. In fact, that makes conflict worse, typically. But see, that's the default. The default is I'm going to pick up my phone and handle a relationship problem. But the last thing in the world I want to do is sit down and talk to somebody. You know, the, the, the proverbial sort of stereotypical thing is you got two young people sitting on the couch three feet from each other. What are they doing? They're texting each other. Right? They're posting on social media to each other. And, and again, um, some of you in the room are going, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I don't have any problems. I know, I know. That's good. And we need your generation to help these younger generations that don't have a clue about relationships. Okay? So we need each other. Uh, we don't need a village. We need a church. Okay? Um, but, but this is interesting. And, and that, that's what makes rediscovering biblical friendships so important. Um, one of you mentioned this. Gospel effectiveness and God-glorifying aspects of life require an ability to have and maintain and thrive in biblical friendships. You can't have a marriage that glorifies God without what we're talking about here. You can't, you can't have a missions program that glorifies God unless these sorts of things are happening. 
So you think it's not just, oh, okay, I'll just content myself with social media and if my marriage is lousy, that's just the way it is. No, this is, this is a gospel issue at the end of the day. It's a gospel issue because we can't be faithful to do what God calls us to do and be without having biblical friendships. Let me, let me prove this to you. Okay? Don't, don't take my word for it. Look, look on your notes here. Okay, That was just kind of some intro. Look at this. The Bible teaches that God designed humanity to involve relationships. Newsflash. God made us relational. And even God himself is relational. In a different way, but nonetheless relational. Okay? Let, let me give you some... Think about this. God made us preeminently for relationship with himself, didn't he? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. All things were made by Jesus and, and for him, right? All things were made by him and for him. What is that saying? It's saying the goal of why God made people was to glorify him by making people for himself, for that purpose. And yet, what do people do? In our sin, in our fallenness, we reject God and we go our own way and then we wonder why life is so hard. You know, we're turning away from the one thing we really need. So God made us for himself. Notice also, God made us for relationships and marriage. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, you know this. God says, in the context of the perfect Garden of Eden, perfect society, no sin yet, no suffering, no death, life is perfect, God says, um, there's one thing that's not good. He just said, after building the whole creation in six days, behold, it is tov ma'od, it is very good, right? And then a few verses later, he says, there's one thing that's not good. And you go, what? It's not good for the man to be what? Alone, okay? Now, now notice, he's not saying Adam was lonely, okay? In fact, God has to prove this to Adam because Adam's happy as a clam, right? I mean, he's just, he just going and everything's great. And God says, no, 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 it's not good, Adam, that you're by yourself, that you have no companion. So we see that relationships are part of God's design in marriage. Now, we understand God specially gifts certain people for a life of singleness. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7 talks about that. But God's general will for most people, according to this design, is companionship and marriage. We also see it with family. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. These commands which I have given you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall speak of them when you walk by the way, and when you rise up, and when you sit down. And uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's relationship in family, parents and children, talking to each other, ministering. And, and, note, and, and call me crazy. Joe Weezy, call me crazy, okay? But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, about bringing your, up, bringing your children up, training them to maturity, cannot be accomplished by texts alone. It can't. It requires face-to-face relationships. And have we not seen this in Proverbs How many times in Proverbs do we see Solomon literally actually sitting down with his children saying, put down your iPad. Okay, there were no iPads. Um, Look at me, son. I want your attention. And having face-to-face conversation, not in a monologue, but in a relationship, in a dialogue, in a a way that parents. It's there. It's it's so obvious, but it's, it's a theme of the book of Proverbs. What about this? 
with society. Relationships in society. What is the second greatest commandment, by the way? What's that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how does that work? You say, well, I love him over Facebook. Well, yeah, you can love people over Facebook. That's cool. Yeah, that's right. But remember when the guy asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He didn't say, well, go post some social media encouragement. He didn't say that. He told a story about a person who had a physical need and the religious leaders of the day walked right by that need and the neighbor, the Samaritan, was the one that stopped and did what? And helped him. Physically helped him. Like put down his phone and tended to his wounds. That's what a neighbor is. So society involves relationships. We can't obey the second greatest commandment without understanding relationships and engaging in them. How about this? With other believers in the church. We we saw this. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, The one anothering passages of Scripture. That that a church is a gathering of like-minded believers who use their gifts to serve one another so that the mission of the church is accomplished and the people of God are edified. Well, guess what? That involves relationships we can't all sit at home on our phones and do that we, we can't be isolationists we, we can't we can't even come together and say how is the weather oh it's kind of hot today well it's north texas of course it's hot and you know um and have that level of of sort of birdbath conversation right we got we got to get to know people there has to be depth and understanding and a common unity and purpose and we can't accomplish the mission of the church without that and I love this, and I want to show this to you because I've been, I've been um, alluding to this, but let me just show this to you. Turn to Titus chapter 2 before we get to Proverbs. We are going to get to Proverbs here in a minute. Um, Titus chapter 2, and this is where I think our church is... is um, I just appreciate our church so much when I think about this, okay? Uh, Granbury is an interesting place to live, isn't it? Um, you have a large retirement population here. Uh, no real industry. You know, you've got the the nuke plant out uh, Comanche Peak. Um, a lot of retail, but, but it's it's an interesting demographic. And um, and you guys know this. Most churches self-define themselves. You guys know this. Most churches, what is popular and how you do church today is you self-define yourself, which means you say that's the generation I want to reach, and so you design your whole church to reach that particular demographic. I'm not suggesting that that's a good way to go about it necessarily, but so what you typically have is you have a church of people in their 60s and older, with very few young people, and then you've got a church of like people in their 20s and younger and they don't have any middle-agers or beyond. Uh, very, very common, okay, because of how church is done. And I just want to tell you that that is, that is horribly tragic to the mission of the church because the mission of the church depends on this verse. Look at Titus chapter 2 and look at verse 2. It says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible 
In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, in that text is the genius blueprint of God when it comes to building up others in the church. And it is a cross-generational design. Because what typically happens is the young people in the church say, I like this music, and I like this culture, and I like these hobbies, and they go over there and hang out with their friends. And all the old people, they say, well, we like this music, and we like things the way they've always been, and so we're going to go over here. And those two generations never meet. Which is why, which is why as a church, we have to think very carefully about, for example, how do we do music? Right? How do we do aspects of ministry? Because what we don't want to do is unnecessarily isolate any generation or promote facets that are unique to one generation. Because this verse says there needs to be a partnering of generations. The younger generations need the input of older, godly, more mature people. And older, godly, more mature people, that, that's the season of, that, that's the, 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 the silver lining of ministries when you get to look back and help those younger generations. That, that's what, that's what biblical retirement is, frankly, um, is, uh, engaging in that level of ministry. So we need that, and, and so we notice, again, that re- relationships are needed. Uh, if that level of discipleship is going to occur. So uh, the, the conclusion here, and this is all introduction, is that friendship is a part of all these relationships. Okay? Friendship is a part of all of those relationships. So if you can't do friendship, think of what you lose out on, you, you miss out on. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, and, and we'll just uh, uh, focus here for the rest of our time together, what is a friend according to the Bible? Okay, what is a friend according to the Bible? And I, I hope this will be fun. Some of this stuff you'll be like, yeah, I get that. And some of it you're going to go, huh, I never thought of that. And then next week we're going to talk about, um, we'll just kind of go beyond that and uh, we'll look at not just what is a biblical friend, but we're also going to talk next week about the friends you want to have and the friends you want to avoid. Okay, so let's do that. Take your Bible, turn to the book of Proverbs. Let's look at our first principle. Um, And we see it in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. This is probably the most helpful, sort of the broadest verse we have in the book of Proverbs on biblical friendship. Proverbs chapter 17. He practices love at all times. Someone want to read 1717? It's on the screen. You may also have it in your Bible there, but go ahead and give it a shot. Don't everybody jump up at once here. Okay, go for it. One of you said this, and and you're right on. A friend, there's two things we learn about friendship here. It's a person who loves, and it's a person who is consistent or faithful in their love. So, so I, want you, I want you to do this little exercise. You don't need to raise your hand or throw a name out or anything. But I just want you to think about this. Who are the people in your life who consistently love you? Just, you have some names coming to mind, some faces coming to mind. That's great. Those are really your friends, according to the Bible. Those are the, the, the friends that are really, God says, yeah, that's, that's what it needs to be. Now, when we hear love, 
The problem is love is love is basically a useless word in our culture because it means so many things to so many people. So so let's let's make sure we drill down and understand what does the Bible teach? What does it mean when it says a friend loves at all times? What does that mean? Does that mean a true friend gives you whatever you want because true love is about getting your way, right? Or does that mean a true a, a true friend makes you feel good in in every encounter because true love is a feeling, right? A good feeling that you have. Now, what does the Bible teach that love is? Sure. What's the better good? Yeah, let, let me let me direct you to 1 Corinthians 13. We, we, we quote this verse all the time, but I want to look at some attributes here because if you want to be a biblical friend and if you want to identify who really are your friends, we, we need the clarity of a verse like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. And, and I want you, as you're thinking about this, think, this is what God is calling me to be as a friend. This is, this is really the criteria. So notice with me these very familiar verses, but, but hear them again. Love is patient. Now, now we know um, there, there's, a, there's something that's really lost, unfortunately, in how the English translates this. Okay, now our, our seminary friend back here uh, knows where I'm going with this. Um, these are not nouns that are being used here. Love is, and then a noun. Actually, it would be an adjective acting as a noun. But anyway, you get the idea. Um, th- these are actually verbs used here. So you actually would more accurately translate it, love acts patiently. Love acts kindly. Okay, so just, we're thinking verbal action here. We're not thinking static, sort of, ooh, look at love, it's kind. Not like that, it's pretty, but it acts a certain way. That, that's the intent of the language here, okay? So, love acts patiently, love acts kindly, love does not act jealously. Love does not brag, it doesn't act in an arrogant way. It does not act unbecomingly, or we might say rude, or inappropriate. It does not seek its own. What does that mean? does not seek its own. Love isn't selfish. What's that? All about me. That's right, yeah. So you get the idea, if I'm going to be a biblical friend, this is how I treat people. And when I think, who are my true friends, this is how you're, these are how real friends ought to treat you. Okay? Patient, kind, not jealous, not bragging, not arrogant, not rude or unbecoming, not selfish. Notice this one. Love is not provoked. Or we might say, love is not easily angered. Okay? Not easily angered. Um, How about this? Um, It does not take into account a wrong or a wrong suffered. Or the NIV says it does not keep a record of wrongs. And that's a good way to, to get the sense of it. So a friend is not somebody that's keeping score, that's going, weren't you just angry with me last week? Didn't we just have this conversation? And, you know, there's no record. Because when you, and, and part of that is it's assuming another verse that, that Proverbs teaches that love covers a multitude of sins. You're not keeping a record because when you are sinned against, you don't, 
hold that in and hold it over the person and become bitter and angry and resentful, what do you do? You forgive that person. You clear the record. And so you, you, you always have a blank sheet in front of you of charges toward that person because you're so quick to forgive all the time. That's what, that's what this verse means. Uh, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. A friend is not entertained when you fail or when you're struggling. There's not an arrogance. There's not a, cri- a criticism, a judgment that happens. But there's rejoicing with the truth. And, and notice these last wonderful statements here. Love bears all things, right? Talking about endurance. And it actually kind of bookends this. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Bears and endures are the bookends, right? You see that? And that, that, that delimits that section, saying a real friend, real love is somebody who endures and is faithful and is reliable, who's not going away. They're there. They're patient with you. It uh, believes all things. We, we might translate that love believes the best of the other person. Um, Ask yourself this question. Do I tend to put a negative interpretation on what other people are doing or saying? And love, according to this verse, does the opposite. Love always puts the best possible interpretation on what the other person is doing or saying. It hopes all things. What does that mean? I mean, love is saying, I have a confidence in who my God is regarding your situation, regarding a relationship. Okay? So you get the idea. A friend is somebody who lives this all the time. Remember, a friend loves, okay, but not just loves, it's they love at all times. And we realize that the call to be a biblical friend is a, is a huge call, isn't it? That's huge. And, uh, and even now we look at that and we say, Lord, I can't do that. And if we were to conclude that, we would be right, that it takes gospel grace to be that type of person, to be that type of friend. And as, as faces are coming to your mind, as names are coming to your mind, as I read that list and you think, you know what, old so-and-so, he really is that or she really is that to me. Praise God for that person. Because there are very few friends that will be like that to you. And if you have one, then that's a gift from the Lord. Number two on your notes here. A friend's wounds are reliable. His wounds are reliable. Now, now let's, let's think about that, okay? 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Now, we've we got to break that down because there's lots of confusion we can get away from there, okay? The first thing that Solomon is assuming in that verse is that a true friend will wound you when it's necessary. Okay? A true friend will wound you when it's necessary. Now, Sunday afternoon last week, a surgeon that my father had never met literally cut his sternum in half. And they have, you know, some power tools that, uh, you know, like, I don't know if it's, uh, is it Ryobi or is it uh, Makita or I don't know what it is. What they do. But the, what? A skill saw? Yeah, right. And you go, he just cut my father's ribcage in half. Right? And that wound saved his life. 
saved his life. And he's a little sore right now, but it saved his life, literally. Okay. A friend is somebody that will do the same to you. They are not afraid to speak the truth in love, to offer correction, to offer a rebuke, to say, I love you, but I really think you're wrong. A friend in love will call you out when you need it. He or she will get in your kitchen, get in your business when you need a loving friend to be in your business because you're on a bad path. You're going to make a bad decision. You're going to do something that is spiritually destructive to your life. And a true friend does not say, eh, that's kind of messy. I don't want to do that. Do you have people in your life that have done that or will do that? That will love you enough to tell you they think they're wrong, that you're wrong? Um, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, that is a very valuable relationship. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's great. In fact, we're going to get to a proverb that that uh, actually addresses that. But um, yeah, okay. So it's one thing to have a friend like that. It's another thing to say, "How do I respond?" And sometimes, sometimes you will you will isolate yourself from a friend like that because you don't want to hear it. So yeah, our response is is um, very important. And uh, one of the proverbs we're going to look at a moment ago says that a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Which means, if we know faithful are the wounds of a friend, what does that mean? Even though this hurts, what this person just said to me, this person that I love dearly said something that was hurtful to me, they wounded me because they thought I needed correction or rebuke, what does this verse say? If they're a true friend, what is it? It's reliable. Right? It's faithful. So even though it hurts, one of the ways you remember is, this is my friend, I need to trust them. I need to rely on that. And then the verse we'll see a moment later uh, says, that counsel is sweet even if it hurts. Because I know that they have my best interest at mind. Yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you guys, you guys may be reading ahead, but there's another verse that says, you know, he who, um, um, oh, what is it? Oh, help me, help me. It's he, he who greets his, his friend early in the morning, or how's it go? He will be reckoned it to him as a curse. We'll get to that. So yeah, timing, uh, Ephesians 4.29, according to the need of the moment. So we think about timing. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's very important we do that. Yes, Rich. I think we also need to remember that God wounds us. Uh, oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. So yeah, so um, if we cross-reference uh, 29.5, which says, uh, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. What does that mean? A friend who tells you what you want to hear in every circumstance is not a true friend. That's what this verse is saying. A man who just flatters his neighbor, tells him whatever he wants to hear. Right? Whereas a true friend will wound you if you need it. Now, now, don't do what so many people do. You know, they criticize 
the manner of the wounding. Right? Well, you didn't, you didn't, uh, uh, yes, I'm doing something wrong, but, but you didn't say it in a nice way. Well, yes, yes, I'm living in sin and I need to repent, but, but, um, you know, I don't appreciate, uh, the tone of your voice. Well, it's like, good night, man. Um, the guy who cuts you open and does bypass surgery, if he doesn't get two stitches right, shouldn't you be thankful that you're alive? Okay, so don't, don't criticize, you guys know how it is, when you have to be the one who's wounding, that is one of the most difficult conversations in the world to have. Of course, we're not going to get it perfect. So be th- maybe go back to Ray Jean's question. Be thankful that the person loved you enough to go to you. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe you just say, you know what? Thank you so much. I'll take that to heart. Maybe you even disagree with them. That's okay. But be appreciative that you have people in your life that love you enough to say something rather than let you continue in sin where that's the situation. Number three. Yes. Oh, man. Yes, very much so. So, so when you're wounding your friend, you may not say exactly right. Right. But his response might not be exactly right either. Right. And therein lies the need for a, a deeper relationship in the first place. Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that, 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 you know, these are, even for people that are close, these are typically very awkward conversations. So that's a good point, and we just need to give grace and offer grace and, and grow in that. I also think that what Solomon says here, faith for the wounds of a friend, um, usually it's not your role to go around rebuking people that you don't really know very well. There's sometimes that the Bible will require you to do that, even if the relationship is not real strong. But most of the time, this is something that happens between close friends, and, and I think for that reason, because it is so awkward. How about this one, 25:17? Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. What does that mean? A friend is considerate. Consider it. Interesting, you guys know that the, the word neighbor and friend are used in Proverbs pretty much interchangeably. Sometimes friend can have a, 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 closer, uh, a closer relationship that's intended by the word. But a friend is considerate. And, and let me just show you a couple examples of this. Look at, uh, look at 2714. 2714. Uh, this is the verse I couldn't remember a moment ago. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. And if you're a night owl, you're going, Amen. If you're a morning lark, you're going, What's wrong with that? Um, So it it goes back uh, to our brother's point here that um, we need to think about the timing. We need to know the relationship to make sure that we are being considerate. And that requires that we know something of the person uh, in most situations. Look at 2520. 2520. Um, Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda, which does not taste very good, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Now let me help you with that. What, what they're saying is, you're not being a good friend when you bring levity 
to a situation that is serious. Or we can think about Ephesians 4.29. What is according to the need of the moment? It's saying what is the need and then ministering to the need. And what happens is sometimes people are uncomfortable in certain situations. And in being uncomfortable and nervous, they say things and they do things that are unhelpful and potentially even offensive, which is what this, this is saying. Say, don't, don't make jokes, don't sing happy songs in a moment that requires good listening or a careful word or something along those lines. Okay? Um, hospital, hospital visits, yeah, funerals. Um, so just, just be mindful of what your words communicate and particularly the context that you're in. 26.18, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, oh, I was just joking. So what's that saying? A friend is somebody who is considerate, even with something as lighthearted as joking. You can joke with somebody in a way that is hurtful to the person if you're not considerate. Okay? So he practices love at all times. His wounds are reliable. He is considerate. How about this? He helps others when able. 327 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. So this goes back to what Jesus uh, says about the story of the Good Samaritan that illustrates biblical friendship, that if your brother or sister is in need, James talks about this as well, um, that a friend is somebody who meets that need when it's in your power to do that. How about this? This one may throw you off. He makes edifying friction. He makes edifying friction. You know the verse. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens his friend. Now I want to I want to put a little star at the end of this one because this is one of those verses that we have to do we have to do some pretty serious interpretation. And I'm not saying this is the only way to understand it, okay? But I think after studying it that this is what the verse means, okay? Iron sharpening iron. Tell me about that. It's noisy and hot. Why is it hot? Because there is friction. Okay. And, and this is where we go, huh, what on earth is that? We love to quote that. Like, this is like a favorite men's retreat. Iron sharpening iron. We're men. We're going to iron sharpen. And then you go, what does that mean? Um, I know it sounds good. looks good on a t-shirt, right? But what does it actually mean? I think this is what it means. I think it means that a good relationship is one where the person is not always agreeing with you. And have you noticed this, that God didn't make a relationship of clones that were all very different? And those differences sometimes create friction, don't they? Different perspective, different opinion, different way of looking at it. Well, and, and sometimes we just say, oh, I don't, I, I want to avoid people like that, and I want to, I want to hang with my buddies that agree with me on everything. And Solomon is saying, no, you don't want that. You need a certain type of friction, an iron sharpening iron friction. And notice, we think about the picture, that gives us the friction, but notice the verb that's used here. The friction does what? 
it sharpens it. And in a relationship, what does that mean? In a relationship, it means it makes it stronger. It, it edifies or it builds up. That's the term I chose to use here. It strengthens it in some way. It improves it in some way. It makes it more effective, we might say, in some way. So, so th- that's the ballpark. We can't get, we can't get too precise because the metaphor is, is a little bit too vague. But the point is, we need friendships where there is some level of friction because there's not always agreement, there's not always the same opinion, the same perspective, but done properly. This is what's amazing. In the context of the church, in the context of marriage, in the context of family or work, if you are committed to being the type of friend that God calls you to be with all those other attributes, listen, listen very closely, you can create friction that actually makes you both stronger. And I think that's what Solomon means by this verse. Yeah, Rich, comment on that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or even a Bible teacher mm-hmm. who's getting in my kitchen right. and causing friction yeah. Yeah, this is not always necessarily a relationship of equals, right? It might be in a coach uh, uh, athlete situation where there's some authority or involved there, but yeah, no that, that, that works too. The, the the point is not all friction is bad. I guess would be Solomon's point. Some friction is good, and uh, one of you, uh, Regine mentioned, it's not just what's offered, but it's how the person responds to it. So if somebody in your life is creating friction, but they're trying to help you, and they love you, and you recognize this is really a friend, don't run away from that relationship. Be, be, you know, I'm thankful that I have people in my life that don't think like I do. I need that. Because in my pride, sometimes I think my way is the only way, and, and I miss out on all sorts of other things. Okay, let's keep going. He gives encouraging counsel. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. We think about this in the context of discipling and counseling ministry because if you want to have influence in the life of other people, it requires a more significant relationship. In other words, if a stranger gives you advice, you go, okay. But if it's somebody you love and are close to and trust and depend upon and they're faithful and they know you and they've been with you for years and they say something, you're more likely to receive it as a good thing, aren't you? Even if it's hard counsel. So a friend gives encouraging counsel. It, it, a man's counsel is sweet when it's coming to a friend, from a friend. And finally, uh, he endures in the relationship. This is interesting. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Um, Really, two things being highlighted here. One is the endurance in the relationship. This is a friend loves at all times, right? This is an enduring relationship. Um, if you're going to be a friend, and this is how you know friends, it's people that don't abandon you. And, and notice, look, look at this, a true friend will not even abandon a father's friend. You know, there's a, a friendship that says, you were so kind to my father, and I'm not going to dismiss that relationship, even though you may not have 
uh, the same relationship that your father did with that friend. So there's a, there's a respect within friendships like that. But notice this one. Look at the end of the verse. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. It's an enduring relationship, but it's also saying, you know, be thankful to have a, a friend who is close by. Now, now notice, now of course they didn't have social media. God could have given us a social media clause and said, you know, 2,000 years from now, there's this weird thing, actually 2,500 years from now, 2,900 years, excuse me, this is Proverbs. Um, there's going to be this weird phenomenon called social media and everybody's going to think they're so connected, right? I have, I have you know, 798 friends on Facebook and I'm, and God's going to say, you know, just don't worry about that. Um, no, what, what does he say? He says, a, a neighbor who is near, that's geographically, that, that's physically, that's like across the street, in town, rather than across the country. And there's something to be said about the God-inspired point here that to have a close friend who is nearby is really better than having your brother there because he lives far away. Okay, listen to this. This is from Derek Kidner, his uh, uh, commentary on the book of Proverbs I read this and I went, this is so good, I just wanted to print it for you, okay? What is a biblical friend? Here, here's, his, here's his answer. Kidner tried to summarize a lot of what we've done. The neighborly qualities which Proverbs urges on the reader add up to nothing less than love, though the word itself is not prominent. He is to be notably a man of peace, not only reluctant to start strife or to spread it, but disarmingly kind and generous in his judgments. He will realize that silence is often wiser than criticism, that a person who has failed should evoke help rather than contempt, and that the distaste with which one views another man may owe more to one's own evil heart than to his. For all this, his kindness must not overbalance into sentimentality. He must be able to keep his distance from some, and able to say no to an unwise transaction as promptly as he will say yes to a proper claim. The standard he upholds will be as much as service to his neighbor as the good things that he dispenses. Whew! That's good, isn't it? And that's what God calls us to be in being a true friend, a true neighbor. Uh, one who loves God and loves neighbor. Okay, so... Take that to heart. Be thankful as you think about people that are like this to you in your life. Thank the Lord extra today for those friends. Uh, and let's strive by God's grace as we draw near to Him to be a true friend uh, to one another as we've, uh, as we've read today. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for how it instructs us in something as simple as friendship but oh so crucial and so particular and, and uh, so specific even that... Um, to realize that biblical friendship is, there's a lot to it. So Lord, I pray, would you make us to be men and women of faith that are these, that, that exemplify these qualities that we've seen in a true biblical friend today. By God's grace, might we be people like this. And Lord, we also want to thank you as we have been stirred up in our minds, men and women in our lives that are true friends to us. Lord, thank you for those people. We know those are gifts from you. And we want to thank you. And if possible, we should thank them also. Thank, thank you for being a true friend. Uh, so Lord, uh, work in us 
Help us to be the friends that you call us to be. In Christ's name, amen.